The reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns, all the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattitiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on his right hand, and Pedadiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Mishalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Banai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akubi, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Marasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of ancestral houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to the scribe Ezra in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should live in booths during the festival of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their towns and in Jerusalem as follows. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on the roofs of their houses and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. For from the days of Jeshua, a son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the festival seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've skipped a whole section, so we stopped at chapter 7, verse 3 last week, and this week we've started again at chapter 8. I'm just being gracious again because there's a whole bunch of names and lists and families, and we don't need to learn the names and lists and families because as soon as they come in, they kind of go out and... They're complex names to remember, and so what we're doing is we're entering back in at chapter 8. Chapter 8 in Nehemiah, for those that have just joined us, is a fair way into what we've termed God's uh, building project. The people of God, you know, you will have heard of Jerusalem, uh, Israel. Uh, The people of God have lived and rebuilt uh, this town, so we've Nehemiah's Jerusalem, all the walls have been rebuilt. And so we've been looking these last few weeks at the walls being rebuilt, the people being gathered, dealing with opposition, uh, those sorts of things. And now finally the walls and the gates are finished. And we, that's where we pick up uh, chapter 8. Uh, last week we talked about dealing with opposition and the pathway to dealing with opposition is discernment, that is the wisdom of God for the situation that we're in, in order to enable us to find God's solution to the problem that's in front of us in terms of opposition. This week, uh, we're going to talk about finding strength through joy. A lot of the time, Christian preachers, when they talk about joy, they, they say, you've heard joy is this, but real joy, Christian joy, is actually this. And so they make this Uh, they make this comparison between 
a joy and happiness. I looked up the dictionary of joy and I looked up the dictionary as to what it said about happiness and it said for joy, joy is about contentment and pleasure experienced in our emotions. Then I looked up happiness and it said happiness is about contentment and pleasure. (laughs) And so our dictionary, our, our language, our way of expressing it doesn't generally have a huge breadth. Uh, When we talk about joy, uh, there's a difference to it that is helpful for us to recognize, but I'm not going to give you a definition that you're going to forget. Because let's face it, if if I gave you a complex definition, uh, I think you probably would forget it. I'm I'm going to do a little bit of a comparison, and I'm going to hopefully, in doing a comparison, help you to pull out what is the difference between joy and what is the difference uh, between joy and happiness. And so hopefully this helps you to gain a little bit of an understanding as to what happiness is about and also what joy is about and what is on offer to you from God. Uh, Sometimes when a preacher talks about joy, uh, they talk about it in such a way that someone that isn't a Christian doesn't experience joy. I don't think that's true. I think we all experience joy in this world. And so hopefully you can recognize some of that difference of experience as I go through and make this comparison. So happiness is something momentary. It's something we experience in a moment. Say you do something well, you feel happy at the end. Uh, Say someone gives you a good present, you feel happy, but it's a a momentary happiness. Say you buy something from the shop, you you often feel happy when you bought it and you get home and you go, oh, I've got more stuff. Where do I store this stuff? And joy is something that's enduring. Uh, Joy continues beyond the moment, and it is something that brings us a contentment or pleasure. Uh, there's a, a, a contentment, I'm happy about life, I'm settled, I'm, I'm peaceful, a pleasure, I feel an emotion in my heart that uh, we would describe as joy, or some may say happiness, but because it is continuing, we would say it is joy. Happiness, though, is a satisfaction or or delight. As I said, I've done this thing well. I've completed my work. I worked hard today. I'm happy with my days with the work. It's a delight in something. That's a that's a really good present. A delight in a child that's done something really good, but it's momentary and surface level. It often doesn't go, happiness doesn't go below the surface to something uh, deeper uh, because it's just circumstantial. It's, I'm happy about this thing, I'm happy about this present and it's surface level but joy is soul, deep feeling, it's deep-seated. It's not something that's just experienced like a happy thought up here, it's something that's experienced deep down in my belly, It's, it's deep and filling It's not just circumstantial. Your circumstances may change, but joy continues. It endures because it's relational. When your circumstances change, sometimes relationships change, but often often relationships continue. I put two arrows next to it because I want us to recognize that joy comes in two different ways. Joy comes in a relationship between two people. This person loves me. I really love this person. I really appreciate this person. Joy is produced in relationship, so it's a horizontal relationship. As someone expresses love towards us, we feel joy in and of ourselves. I feel like I'm rejoicing 
because of the love that my wife has for me. Uh, Joy is also something that comes to us from God. So when Christian preachers are distinguishing between joy as something only Christians can experience and joy those people in the world can't, uh, I think uh, what actually we need to distinguish is joy is relational and so it's experienced through people, but there's a source that comes from God. So God gives us relationships with other people because he recognizes that it's not good for us to be alone. We need relationships. And as God pours joy into people, joy or love is expressed to others and that produces uh, joy in us. But ultimately, joy comes in relationship with God. Psalm 1611 says, At your right hand I experience pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, joy is accessible to us. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So as God's Spirit dwells in us, joy is produced in us. It's relational. It comes from knowing God, but it's also expressed in relationship with one another. It's past, present, future. Uh, While happiness is just past, present, near. You can be happy about something that's going to be happening tomorrow, But joy is often future-oriented. We're thinking about life. And it's a a hope in something that's future-oriented that is trustworthy and certain. So the Christian hope is that we will one day uh, go to heaven, that one day God will bring the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a certain hope. It's not just wishful thinking, whereas happiness is more similar to possibility, wishful thinking about the future And so it's a near-focused attention. So as we look at those two things, joy and happiness, you might like to think about where we seek joy. Where do do we seek joy? I I think uh, we are always looking for joy. When we go about seeking uh, our own happiness, what we're really pursuing is joy. We want something deep within us that really satisfies us and lasts. The way we go about things is we often pursue happiness, don't we? We go for the the quick fix. This food is going to make me so happy. Eating some of these chocolates will make you feel happy momentarily. Sex makes someone feel happy momentarily. But the joy of relationships sustains beyond, such that Scripture can say rejoice in the wife of your youth. Find joy in the wife of your youth. Not the moments, the relationship. But we often go after things momentary. If, if I get this money, if I get this gift, if I buy this thing, online shopping is addictive because you get to buy things and it gives you a momentary rush, right? Drugs are something that people turn to for a momentary happiness. But what they're seeking deep down, is joy. So where do we seek joy? I think, reflecting on ourselves, we all know the good ways and the bad ways that we all seek joy. When I pursue happiness, I get a buzz. When I pursue joy, I get strength. The drug addict that has drugs for the first time continually pursues that first high that they got 
they read into that first tie that it was joy when actually it was just momentary happiness. And that's the way drugs work to cause an addict to continually pursue that buzz that they first got. But joy is deep. It's filling. It produces strength. Uh, Drug addicts that, that I've spoken to and heard testimony from that have become Christians say, the joy that I get from knowing God has no comparison to the high that I got in pursuing drugs. And so I have no desire to go back to that high from drugs, even though physically they may deal with some repercussions in their body actually desiring that high. Because the the high that I get from knowing God far outweighs what I pursued and got in the drugs. So when I pursue happiness, I get a buzz. When I pursue joy, I get strength. So where where do I seek joy? As we consider this, uh, and as you consider that question in your mind, uh, we're going to look at where they sought joy. Uh, The people of Nehemiah are the people of Israel, the people of God, and the whole of the Old Testament tells the story of how they pursued their joy in momentary pleasures. They they went after idols because they thought in worshipping idols they would receive good crops and their wealth would really grow. Uh, They went after Uh, many wives and relationships and were sexually promiscuous because that brought them momentary happiness. Uh, They went uh, after other allies uh, because in having a physical ally there, a surrounding country, instead of trusting God to be their defender, they felt a, a momentary sense of happiness and security. And they were kicked out of the promised land because they pursued happiness when they wanted joy. And so Nehemiah really takes us into the picture of a people that have been exiled for hundreds of years from the place of promise. They've now returned, and in their returning, they're being offered this chance to reestablish this relationship with God. And they're being told that this relationship is what will produce for them joy and will be their strength. Uh, so the question for them, now that they've got walls around them, is where to, where to now? We feel a sense of safety. We're, we're happy because our circumstances have changed. But how do we live? And so we've been looking at Nehemiah, who's been a governor, who's led the building project of building walls around the outside. Enter stage left, Ezra. Ezra is a priest. There's a separate book in the Bible that talks about Ezra. But Ezra enters this chapter in Nehemiah and Ezra reads the law. Ezra opens the book in the sight of all people. uh, For he was standing above all the people on a a wooden platform. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. You know, it's really funny. A previous vicar, Ernest, uh, came to our our service last week. And typically in an old Anglican service, when the gospel is read, everyone will stand up. Now, we haven't typically done that at the 9 a.m. service, but Ernest was here and he stood up and everyone stood up. Why do we stand up? As a a sign of honour to God, as a sign of recognition that the Bible is a a text where God is speaking to us through it, as a sign of respect and honouring that it has authority in our lives. So they stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Amen means I agree. I agree with what you're saying. And then they lift up their hands as they were saying it. If you ever look at someone lifting up their hands in worship and go, oh, I don't know what's up with them. 
Well, they've been doing it for the last thousands of years, lifting up hands and worshipping God. And then they bow their heads, hands up, and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Did they have any particular text or any particular words? No, they, they expressed their heart's appreciation for who God is because finally, as a people, they were secure at one. And finally, they realized they were positioned where they were meant to be, sitting under God as the people of God. Where were they? It says right at the start of chapter 8. They were at the water gate. Uh, that's significant. If you look at this picture... I've oriented the map the wrong way. Uh, it's the little gate right down at the bottom. Up the top of this diagram, there's the large section. That's the temple. Uh, in Ezekiel's vision of the future as to uh, God's blessing flowing out to the world, he talks about a river that will flow from the throne of God out of the temple to the east. And as it heads out uh, to the east, it runs down and it comes out like a river. And at the edges of the river are trees and these Trees produce fruit and life is given wherever this river flows. Uh, in Revelation, it speaks uh, of these trees and of this river as the river of God running and bringing blessing into this world. And the, the fruit is as a blessing and the leaves as uh, healing to the nations. And so the blessing of God flowing out, they stand at the water gate, east of the temple as the water flows out and they recognize in it that the purpose of the law is actually to ensure life goes well. When we hear about uh, rules in the Bible and rules that God says, we often think of rules being something that constricts us and stops us. But actually the purpose of biblical law is to ensure that life goes well. That is, life in relationships go well. So when Jesus came and said, I give you one command and this supersedes all, that is you love as I have loved you, he's not saying those things aren't still helpful for relationship. He's saying that if you love in this way, uh, you'll know how to live out relationships well and I'll write that on your heart. But biblical law gives us framework to ensure that life goes well. Uh, Holly, she won't mind me sharing this. Uh, <laughs> she... The other week was having lots of issues with doing what we asked and resisting every time we asked her to do something. And life did not go well for her that week. And then this last week, she's been really good and she's been doing what we asked and she's been really helpful. And life goes better when you do that, right, Holly? And do you know what? Because <laughs> we make life easier. But, <laughs> but it also, when we do the right thing, it actually produces a joy in us. When we live a life of obedience to, to God, it's not just that life goes well. It's that there's a joy in obedience. When you do things that are loving towards other people, it brings us joy. Uh, that's part of what God set the law up for us as a, as a framework in order for things to go well. And so as the people hear it, they're convicted. For them, for hundreds of years, life has not gone well. <laughs> They're convicted, partly, that it's their fault. They've not understood God's law, and as they hear it, they've done the wrong thing. But I think they're particularly convicted because they realize they're stuck in the, they were stuck in the situation that they were in because of the choices that they made to pursue momentary happiness instead of enduring joy. 
Generationally, they've been trapped because they've pursued happiness over joy. And so they're convicted that 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. 52 days, suddenly they're in a position of security. Suddenly they're beginning to not just feel happy, but joyful again. Suddenly they're reestablished as the people of God. As they've lived a life of obedience, they're convicted that they've missed out as a result of their own choices. But conviction uh, comes to them in a time of the year where they're actually meant to be celebrating and thankful and full of joy. In October, uh, September, October, the Jewish New Year ticks over and it falls right at the end of harvest. They've received the harvest in. They're praying for new rain to come. It's called the Festival of Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles. The booths are like tents. Uh, It was meant that everyone would gather for, for seven days and to celebrate in the seventh month. And as they celebrated, they were really celebrating what God has done. Uh, it's also uh, in modern times called uh, a sukkot uh, in the Jewish community. And so you may have heard this. And they turn over their Jewish year at that time, about September, October, in our calendar year. It works better in the Northern Hemisphere than the Southern Hemisphere because it is around harvest seasons. But it says in in here that they've actually lost touch with celebrating this. Even though 100 years earlier they've come back from exile, they've lost touch with this festival and this celebration. And as they rediscover law, it's really significant. Everyone is there and they're listening. It's not just the men, because a lot of the time it was just the men that did things. But the children are there. The women are there. Everyone is there hearing the law beginning to understand it, and the the priests explain so that people can get a sense of it. It's not just words that are given uh, that you're meant to understand. They explain it, and through that process, people come to a place of understanding. Part of their responsibility as the people of God is, as one generation understands the law and understands relationship with God, they teach the next generation. So grandparents have a responsibility to teach parents. Parents have a responsibility to teach grandchildren, not just about the law, but so that they would understand it and get a sense of it and live it. And that's the way Christian discipleship works. Parents teach kids. I get 20 minutes with everyone, or maybe 25, 30 minutes with everyone each week. But Parents are with kids all the time and they're convicted that they've missed out and the generations that followed have also missed out on something that was designed for them to be a generational blessing. As faith is passed on from father to son, from mother to daughter, from mother to son to grandchild and so on, it's there as a blessing. And so the people convicted that they've missed out on the blessing uh, that they were designed to have. But you don't stay in the place of conviction. God doesn't want us to live in this little ball, crouched down, feeling bad about ourselves. That's not his purpose. The conviction is designed to lead us back into relationship with him, that we would know his love, that we would experience some of this enduring joy, some of this contentment, this pleasure, this deep soul-feeling joy that comes from him. Now, the other difference about joy is joy is not just future. It is eternal. The the well of salvation wells up until 
eternity. Joy is not something that you get for a moment and you're continually chasing the same amount of joy. It is that you are filled with joy and joy is laid on top of joy. Uh, Paul speaks about how we're to, uh, how he prays for us to know the, the love of God, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of love uh, that no one can fathom or understand the full measure of. There's never, uh, I've reached the end of joy. I've reached the fullness of joy. As you grow in your relationship with God, there is more joy available to you than when you first started. And as you get to understand this joy, uh, you can grow in this joy. So, so what are the ways that we find joy in the Lord? It's really simple at one level. We do what they did. We sit under scripture. We read the Bible. Uh, it's again simple. Obey the Bible. Look at what it says and live it. And then we worship. It's in worship with God as we turn to him and express our pleasure with him. He fills us with joy by his spirit as he makes his pleasure with us known to us. That's, that's worship. But joy is not just something that's taught. It's contagious. We catch it in relationship with God. Contagious is not a word that we like to use at the moment, but that's the, <laughs> it's infectious. That's the way joy works. Find someone that has joy in God, spend time with them, uh, get to know where their joy is and worship with them. That joy is something that is not just taught, but taught. You'll catch joy as you spend time with other Christians. And if we don't spend time with other Christians... Joy tends to fade into the distance as we spend more and more time with those who pursue happiness over joy. And so joy is contagious. We experience it in relationship with others. So why do, why do I want this joy? It's enduring, soul-filling, it's relational, it's deep, it's past, present, future. No matter the circumstance, it can be there. You can be sorrowful and rejoicing, um, Paul talks about. So it, no matter your circumstances, you can find joy in God. But why, why do I want this joy? Randall, describe it to me as a problem. Uh, if I was to say to you, love is amazing, uh, it's like this. You would say, but, but what's it like? I've never experienced it. What, what is love like? And I'd say, but it's amazing. You've really got to experience this. That love is just something you're made for. And you'd say, well, what is it? Well, (laughs) there's a problem. There's a problem there. Until you know this joy, I can't fully describe it to you. But I can tell you, like, that I've (laughs) I've not gone and done drugs, but like the drug addict that says it's far better than any other joy that they were able to receive. I can tell you that joy that comes from God is far better than any joy that I've been able to find in any way that I've pursued it. And it comes guilt-free, full of life, and with abundance. 1 Peter says this. It says, although you have not seen him, you love him. And you know that you are loved by him. To know that God in heaven loves me changes my life, blows my mind, and fills my heart with joy. When you know someone else, human, loves you, it fills your heart with joy. When you know God loves you, not just know about it, but no deep, soul-filling way, it fills your heart with joy. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice. You rejoice because you know he's got the past, present, future in hand until eternity. With an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So as we understand salvation, as we receive the truth of God for ourselves, it fills our hearts with joy. And that only grows as you go on in faith. So my my question for us this morning is, do you want joy? Maybe you're sitting here and I've been describing something that is indescribable or inexpressible and you've not quite caught it. Maybe you've never experienced some of that. Do you want this joy? I've got a few ways for us to respond. One is to read Mark's Gospel. Just pick a a chapter each day. Read Mark's Gospel. So read Scripture. And begin each day in the coming weeks uh, to invite God as you pray to reveal to me the joy of salvation. First thing, you can't experience joy unless his spirit is within you. Reveal to me the joy of salvation. Bring salvation to my house. Fill me, the second prayer, fill me with inexpressible joy that I, in and of myself, in a deep, soul-filling, pleasure-bringing, enduring way, would know joy inside of my heart. And so I'm going to pray now, and as I pray, uh, I'm going to invite you to just pray quietly to yourself and, and ask God, Uh, to fill you with this kind of joy. Uh, Do do you know one of the the things that can get in the way of us receiving from God? It's our fear of the judgment of other people. (laughs) What will other people think? I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like a weird Christian person. Judgment gets in the way of future joy. Don't let your judgment of the goodness of how God's going to work in you Get in the way of you receiving what he has for you now. Let let me pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, you have, uh, since before the beginning of the world, prepared for us what you offer to us in Jesus. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us, forgive me uh, for seeking happiness in things uh, that are momentary, temporary, surface level, circumstantial, instead of pursuing uh, what you offer. If you'd like to pray with me, please reveal to me uh, the fullness of your joy found in Jesus. Reveal to me the joy of salvation. Fill me with inexpressible joy by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen.